0: Today is December 4th, 2020. The Democrats focus on cats and cannabis, and new data shows the labor market has significantly shrunk since the start of COVID. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and family, to another fantastic episode here on Split the Difference podcast, hosted by yours truly, Austin Taylor. I'm here to tell you again, folks, we done did it. We are bringing you the best episode that we've done yet because we're looking at both sides of the aisle, stuff from the left, stuff from the right, all the good, the bad, and all that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. Our goal on this podcast, if you're new, welcome in, is to try and bridge the gap a little bit. We're doing our best to try and be civil. We're trying to be level-headed, trying to be reasonable, and trying to bring a little bit of community and a little bit of unity to what politics is. Nowadays, everything's so divisive. You hear everything on the media. Everything from your great-aunt Sally is telling you that we're more divided than we've ever been, but I don't think that's true, and I think that we are a bunch of civil citizens here in the United States that can still have good civil discourse and can still come to conclusions, even though we may disagree with one another on a lot of things. So with all of that having been said, we're going to hop on in to our story number one. So for our first story of the day, the Democrats catch fire for not being focused enough on stimulus. Amazing. Can you believe that the Republicans are now coming back to the Democrats and angry at them for not being focused on stimulus, even though this is the exact same thing the Democrats were saying about the Republicans about maybe a month ago? So basically all the Republicans are angry because they're saying Nancy Pelosi in the House. They are not focused enough on trying to pass stuff that would be able to help the American people. Uh, a lot of the Republicans are basically accusing them of trying to push the stimulus back until either Joe Biden gets in president, gets you know into office, uh, and that they did that purposefully to try and hurt Donald Trump's chances of winning the election. That may very well be true. Sounds like a lot of politicking that Nancy Pelosi is very, very good at. Um, but there's actually, uh, I guess a big thing that the Democrats are coming under fire for is uh, the two bills that, they're kind of pushing to the floor right now in the house. So the first is actually a pretty historic bill revolving around cannabis. So that is not just a clickbait title. They actually are voting on a cannabis bill. Um, basically what this thing would do is it would come through and it would um, decriminalize cannabis at the federal level, which would be a pretty big Big deal would be the first. It's the first of its kind to actually kind of get brought up in any House of Congress. So let's go ahead and hop in. This is Yahoo Finance uh, reporting on it now. With the House slated a vote for the first time in our nation's history on a bill that would legalize cannabis and expunge certain cannabis offenses in VP elect Kamala Harris's More Act. And for more on how that vote is shaping up, let's bring in Yahoo Finance's uh, Jessica Smith here. And Jess, the vote was postponed once earlier this year, but uh, any more clarity now on when we should expect it? We don't know exactly when this is going to be yet. Sometime later this week, I talked to one Democratic aide yesterday who said it was looking like Friday, um, but we're still waiting on that exact timing. But this bill would end the federal prohibition of marijuana and expunge many cannabis related offenses. As you mentioned, this is the first time such a bill has been up for a vote in the full house. So it is a really big moment for legalization advocates. Ending the federal prohibition would leave it up to states to set their own marijuana policies. And it would end that conflict that we currently see between state and federal law. Right. So um, basically, we can talk a little bit about the weed bill, the cannabis bill before we hop into really, I guess, the Republicans being angry that the Democrats are not focusing on the stimulus. Um, We can hop in and talk a little bit about the pot bill. So first, like uh, was just reported. So it would allow for states to pretty much make their own laws and decide how it is that they wanted to regulate, not regulate or deal with weed. Okay. This has been a huge talking point on the left for a little while. Um, Right now, states can legalized pot. So you can see that in like Washington or most famously Colorado, um, where pot is legal. um, But if a federal agent was in Colorado, they could still technically arrest you for possession of marijuana because it is illegal at the federal level. Um, It also makes lending by banks extremely difficult. And this is a huge problem that I think a lot of uh, the marijuana legal legalization, I guess, activists have had a problem with is a lot of banks don't and will not lend to uh, a lot of people that if they're trying to start up a dispensary or if they're trying to go about what is would be legal in Colorado, um, if they're a nationwide bank, they're not going to lend on it because it technically is still illegal at the federal level. And it's still a, a Schedule One drug. So means it's it's very, very illegal, Um, which actually gets into a lot of, she mentioned it would expunge a lot of criminal records of people that are currently in prison right now due to cannabis related uh, crimes. Uh, It would expunge a lot of their records. Um, This has led a lot of people to say that uh, there should be uh, reparations paid to those people because they now are going to be let out of jail for something that uh, could, for the most part, probably has absolutely ruined their lives because they've been sitting in jail for a long time. Uh, but now it's legal and it's totally fine for people to be able to use recreationally or to sell or buy whenever they please. Um very interesting because uh, this gets into a lot of talking points around like what is the federal government's role in actually paying people back um, for problems and distresses that they have caused. Uh, I, there's a lot of arguments on both sides, and I'm not necessarily going to dive into those arguments, but it actually does make a little bit of sense. I can kind of see the argument behind why you the federal government would have a responsibility to actually pay these people back for, uh, all of basically the lost time that they would have had outside of prison, uh, because they were caught with cannabis or they were caught selling cannabis. Um, and now it's totally legal. They're allowed to do that any anytime that they want. And, you know, depending on the state that they're in. So this obviously does not legalize it completely. So I think that under federal code, uh, it still would not, uh, and basically there are plenty of States that you would not be able to legally sell pot in. So South Carolina, my home state, is a great example of that. Just because they decriminalize it at the federal level does not mean that South Carolina has to decriminalize it as well. Now, South Carolina and other states that are more conservative may eventually totally decriminalize it and then eventually legalize it later on once they realize that you can tax it and it doesn't have a lot of horrible effects. But that, you know, of course, is yet to be seen. So um, at this point, it's actually looking like it might have a chance in the House. It was up for vote earlier this year didn't actually make it to the floor. Um, but there's pretty much the entirety of the Democratic Party is on board for this. Uh, they want to decriminalize it. They want to take all these people out of prison that are currently sitting in prison for cannabis-related charges. Um, but, and the vast majority of the Republicans are as well. I think it's just a sect of the conservatives that don't really want it. So um, what does the left think of it? They're obviously huge fans. Um, the Many, many people on the left and on the Democratic side of the aisle have been pushing this for a long time. Uh, they think that uh, there needs to be huge reform in our criminal justice system and a lot of that centers around the war on drugs um, and all of all of the, I think, how that has disproportionately impact, impact, impacted especially minority communities. Very, very interesting if you've never done any reading on the war on drugs, if you've never done any reading on how our criminal justice system kind of has negatively impacted a lot of minority communities around the country. Very interesting stuff. Definitely read into it uh, if you ever had the chance the right side of the aisle, for the most part, kind of seems somewhat indifferent. I don't think the vast majority of Republicans really care whether pot is legal. There's a portion of the more conservative part of the conservative uh, or of the right side of the aisle that is going to be very much against it. Most of those people tend to be by polling data much older and also very religious, which is not surprising at all. So most of the concerns on the right side of the aisle about legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana is that it will lead to more crime. It will lead to more people smoking weed. And they think that, you know, it's a gateway drug and do a lot of other things. That is something that the war on drugs kind of proposed as well. Um, they're worried that it'll basically do more harm than good. Um, personally, I think it's about time for this to happen. It honestly blows my mind that alcohol, the drug alcohol is legal, but pot isn't. Cannabis isn't. Um, like is, It boggles my mind to think that I can drive literally within two minutes of my house in either direction, go to an ABC store and pick up enough alcohol to be able to completely overdose myself and anyone and anybody else that's coming over to my house anytime, Monday through Saturday, Between seven and seven, seven a.m. and seven p.m. That blows my mind. You know, at no point are you, you know, capped on the amount of alcohol that you can purchase. You can get as much as you want. You can overdose on it if you want. It doesn't matter at all. Um, Alcohol is kind of looked at as this thing where it's like, oh, you know, this is just a kind of a necessary evil that you know some people struggle with this and some people have it, but that's okay. It should be up to the person. Whereas pot is much, much less detrimental to your body. But, you know, you don't see any federal government jumping up and down trying to legalize it right now. So, um, very, very interesting. It obviously all just comes down to whether they can regulate it and tax it well at the federal level. I mean, that's of course how, why it started out that way in the very beginning, not being legal. Um, but the far bigger story around all of this is, uh, how the Democrats are basically voting on this stuff in the House, but they're not trying to bring up bills for, you know, a stimulus stimulus package that could be passed. So Pelosi has come under fire, a lot of fire from the House minority leader, um, Kevin McCarthy. He's out of California as well. Uh, he came out and slammed her. He, he was quoted as saying, Democrats have focus- focused on cats and cannabis, but not on COVID. Uh, cannabis, obviously referring to the cannabis bill that's, you know, going to hit the floor this week. Cats is referring to another bill that is being pushed by the Democrats to go onto the House floor that would make it federally illegal for you to own a large cat. Um, all of, it's called it's being called the Tiger King bill because it kind of was brought up after Tiger King, that hit Netflix docu series that ended up coming out <laughs> earlier this year. Uh, But he went on to say, you'd think after a humiliating defeat at the ballot box this year, that Democrats would get the picture that Americans are demanding some action on these issues. Um, So this was after both Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi both came out and said that they would support something similar to the bipartisan deal that I talked about on my last podcast that was kind of put forth by Mitt Romney and bunch of other more moderate uh Democrat and Republican senators. Um, both Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, the leading Democrats on Capitol Hill came out and were like, Yep, yeah, we're more very interested in this, which is a huge concession from the two point two trillion dollar bill that they proposed earlier this year. Um, so, you know, Republicans are like, Well, you're saying that you're interested in it, but you're not actually pursuing, you know, getting anything out onto the floor to be voted on. So, um, all the while, Mitch McConnell put out his own plan. House, the House or the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell put out his own plan earlier in the week, which was honestly, I read through the bill. It was pretty awful. A summation of it uh, in very few words is basically: it is all pro-business and not very much pro-people. Right? There's a small provision in it. That would extend unemployment benefits for I think about a a couple months max, and then it would slowly start to dwindle out. Uh, there's no stimulus checks that would be passed in Mitch McConnell's bill. The entire thing would basically extend out um, PPP loans. Uh, it would extend out bailouts for uh, large corporations, and it would give small businesses much more protections around legal liability for if someone were to get COVID in their restaurant or get COVID as a result of them bringing someone in that's an employee. Um, definitely it was, it was apparently obvious that this was Mitch McConnell saying, listen, I've got the power in the Senate floor right now. I'm likely going to maintain that power, and I'm not going to concede very much. I'm going to stick to my guns here, and I'm not going to let you try and get anything over on me. I think we need to do a very, very small bill. So at this point, everybody's just continuing to politic. They're going back and forth. Nobody's really putting forth anything except for the moderates. Got to love those centrists. Um, And both sides, both far reaches of the aisle are basically sitting here and just kind of putting their hands in their pocket. And they're like, oh, well, I guess something will get passed eventually just terrible stuff. All this thing, all this stuff needs to be worked out before Christmas, before the end of the year, because a lot of federal provisions run out then. And we're not sure whether or not Joe Biden is actually going to end up implementing another federal or any type of federal lockdown. So things need to change. They need to decide on what they're going to do uh, for a stimulus bill. And a lot of people are looking to Congress right now. and They're pretty frustrated because it doesn't look like it's happening. So Anyways, with all of that having been said, it actually is a great segue into our next story, story number two. So at the beginning of the show, you might have noticed I almost always do three stories. Well, today I'm only doing two because the second story I think is worth spending a little bit more time on. Uh, this is, I also, if you're used to listening to this podcast, I like to focus a little bit more on the economic issues because honestly, I think economic issues in large part affect the vast majority of people much more than a lot more of the kind of like ancillary cultural issues. It's not that those aren't important, but I, you know, majored in finance and I enjoy, I came out of a business school. I like the economic side of things a little bit more. So, um, I want to spend a little bit of time on, uh, the story basically new data came out, uh, saying that the labor market has significantly shrunk as a result of the coronavirus. Um, and I think that it starts to give us a better picture of how COVID has actually impacted our economy and how there's a lot of politicians and a lot of people saying right now that, oh, everything's fine. We've had the fastest recovery that we've ever had. This is a V-shaped recovery. We don't need to worry about things. When in reality, it may not be nearly as rosy as it appears. So, um, there's always a lot of talk about the unemployment rate. And that's been the number one thing that Trump has harped on over the past couple of years, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. The unemployment rate is an incredibly beneficial economic measure, right? Um, which, you know, is all right. He can talk about the unemployment rate and the unemployment rate has been a huge talk during the coronavirus as well, because the unemployment rate obviously went through the roof when COVID hit and they shut down the vast majority of the economy. Um, but what what is the unemployment rate? So the unemployment rate is the percent of the labor force that is jobless, okay? In other words, in order to be included in the unemployment rate, you have to be actively looking for a job. To me though, that measure is very very incomplete. What that tells you is that there's a rate of people there's a rate of people in the economy and those people are currently jobless, but they're also actively seeking work. If you have not been seeking work within the past four weeks, then you are actually not considered in the unemployment rate. You're considered somebody that is not seeking a job. To me, a much better measure is actually around the labor force participation rate. So the labor force participation rate is kind of the the flip side of the coin for unemployment rate. This measures the share of people above the age of 16 that are working or actively looking for work. OK, so the idea basically is this is the amount of people in our economy that can work that are actually working or are looking for work and it also you know gives you the other side where these are the people that can work but they're just not they're just choosing not to so when you're looking at this in february the labor force participation rate was at 63.4% meaning that about 13% a bit over half of people in the united states that were had the ability to be able to work and the in the U.S., are are you know working or were seeking employment? Okay, that means that you know that forty-seven percent or so, or that thirty-seven percent or so uh, of the rest of the country just weren't working or they weren't actively seeking it. That's now that is currently down to about sixty-one percent. So that's about a two to two and a half percent decrease. That may not seem like very much, but in the grand scheme of things, it makes a dramatic difference in the productivity of our economy and the ability for our economy to continue to grow for many more years to come. So the majority of the people that were affected by this were namely women and older people. So you're able from what a lot of the data is showing right now is that a lot of workers that lost their job, if they were women or some of them, a portion of them that lost their jobs that were women are deciding now just to stay home and to not return to work. That either means that they're deciding to stay at home and take care of kids because their children are no longer in school, or they are just right now saying that we're just going to wait it out and maybe eventually go back to work, but likely not. The other portion that are you know most likely affected and most I guess impacted more as a result of all this is the people that older people that are now just deciding to retire early. So um, especially considering that this was a very very weird recession where you had a lot of people that all of a sudden were unemployed, but the stock market has continued to go up, right? And the vast majority of people, when they go to retire, when they're at retirement age, they depend on a couple of different things. One of it is you know, cash reserves that they've put in checking accounts and savings accounts to be able to save as a rainy day fund or something like that. Another one is in real estate. Oftentimes, a huge portion of people's wealth is uh, tied up in the real estate or the home that they own. Another one is in social security or some type of maybe company pension that they have. But for the vast majority of Americans, the good portion of their retirement money comes from investment accounts like an IRA, a Roth IRA, or a 401k or other type of retirement account. Well, for those people that are using those retirement accounts, the majority of that money is invested in equity markets. Well, we had an incredibly weird recession where huge portion of those people lost their jobs. But instead of like in 2007 and 2008, where you saw a gigantic crash in the stock market, and then a very, very, very slow moving upwards of those equity markets over the course of the next couple of years, we've seen a, a bit of a dip, a good dip in the stock market, but now it's back up to historic highs very, very quickly. And a lot of people that, you know, were maybe a year or two years from retirement, we're looking at that and they're like, well, honestly, my 401k is doing better than it's ever done. Like I've got a decent bit saved up. My home's paid off. Instead of going back to work and trying to find another job, I'm just going to go ahead and retire early. So here's how this affects the economy in the long term. Okay. So we're going to use an incredibly anecdotal example. So say there's an older worker, a baby boomer worker, and they're, 59 years old, 60 years old. They're planning on retiring at about 62 or 63. So they've got another two to three years left in the workforce. And around March, COVID hits and they lose their job. Their company decides, Hey, listen, we just can't keep you on right now. We've got a bunch of bills to pay and we don't have any money coming in. I'm sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. So they go back home. They're not working anymore. Come March. Well, now that the economy is coming back a decent bit, and when the economy comes back, the business may reopen that position, right? Because the business itself may still very much have a need for that position, for an employee to be in that position to help them uh, do the work that needs to get done. So they open it back up. But instead of rehiring on the person that is 60 or 61 years old, that is going to end up retiring here in the next year or two anyways, they decide, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go hire somebody that's 25 or 30 years old. They've got a lot more longevity left of their career We can teach them and train them on a lot of the new technology and software that we may be wanting to implement. And most importantly, we can pay them a significantly lower wage. Most of the time, just how the workforce works and how it should work, the longer that you are in the workforce, the more experience that you have, the more education you have in a specific field, the more expensive you are to an employer because you're a more valuable asset, right? Right. When you're hiring on somebody that has 30 or 35 years worth of experience in a specific industry, you have to pay that person more than somebody that just got out of college. Makes sense. Well, what this does is it fills that position of a job that was just sitting vacant, that was already there. So it's not the creation of a new job. It's just filling an old one, right? C- job creation, however, is what actually fuels economic growth and fuels economic productivity. So, by just filling that vacant position with somebody else that's younger, you're not actually creating anything new. You're just kind of going back to the same old, same old. Well, the big difference now is that position is now filled with somebody that is making significantly less money. So, that money now is not, there's not nearly as much money that's being recirculated into the economy by that person that is much younger. They're more than likely going to invest a portion of that money, more than likely going to spend a portion of that money and save a portion as well. But there isn't as much money. So there isn't as much money that's being injected into the economy through the people that are actually working, which causes wages to actually stagnate or go down. A huge indicator of how well the economy is doing is also wage growth, okay? If you're able to see wages continuing to go up because the labor market is shrinking, that is a very, very good sign of a healthy economy. In fact, I think that's probably one of the best things that Trump's economy actually had through 2017, 18, and 19 is for the first time in a long time, you were actually able to see wages, instead of being completely stagnant, actually start to grow and go up over the past couple of years because the unemployment rate was so low and the you know the labor force participation rate was extremely high as well. So most of this, most of the time, when you see uh, an older person retiring or leaving a job and a newer person coming into that role and being paid less money, it just happens over the course of time. It's just regular you know businesses hiring and letting people go and people retiring, and it kind of is. It's all of it is kind of leveled out by the creation of other new jobs within the economy. Well, when that, when all of the economy kind of crashes at once, when all of those older people are fired or go to retire at the exact same time, what ends up happening is it has an exacerbated effect on wages and an exacerbated effect on how it affects or impacts the overall economy, right? So new jobs aren't necessarily being created, old jobs are just being filled, All of this is being compounded, of course, by the fact that the Federal Reserve earlier this year flooded the economy with cash, coming out and buying a whole bunch of bonds, a whole bunch of treasury bonds, basically just trying to inject the economy with a little bit of fresh fuel to keep it going. And as Joe Biden is coming in and is planning on hiking taxes, a decent amount for a lot of the more, you know, a lot of corporate businesses plan on raising the corporate tax rate and also raising taxes on a lot of higher income individuals that employ a lot of people as well. So, Obviously, we don't know exactly how all this is going to play out. We have had probably one of the stronger and faster recoveries that we've ever had to a recession in this past recession. So the economy needed to constrict a little bit, but it's kind of yet to be seen how all of this will actually start to play out. Um, it'll, over the next couple of years, years, we, we actually may see The economy slowed down a good bit uh, if we have higher taxes and we have a large amount of people um, that are actually not having their wages increase nearly as much because it's a much younger group that is sitting in the workforce and all these baby boomers are starting to retire. So Yes, that means that there may be some businesses that have more money that they can reinvest into their business, um, or that means that there's more money that they can reinvest and maybe hiring other employees. That may be true. That may spark a new wave of job creation, um, but the business has to actually be there um, for them to be able to bring on those new jobs, right? They have to actually be bringing in money. Well, that's not going to happen if there's higher taxes, nearly as much. That also isn't going to happen if the economy shut down. So, um all of it could make a perfect storm for a very long and very slow recovery. I obviously I'm you know, I'm not Janet Yellen or Jerome Powell sitting as a chair at the Federal Reserve. But from what it looks like to me, this is something that not nearly as many politicians like to talk about because they know that it's difficult to parse through and it also doesn't make a lot of the federal government look great either, uh, because the federal government's the one that shut the economy down. So Um, we'll have to see what all this, what all ends up happening come January 20th. If there's going to be a federal lockdown, if there's going to be a lot of reversals to Trump's tax policy that lowered a lot of the corporate tax rates down to about 21%. So with all of that having been said, that is the show. Let's go ahead and hop on into the last segment of the day. Something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week is Christmas movies. I know I'm going to be that corny guy and I'm going to go ahead and throw out there. I love This time of year. It is the most wonderful time of the year by far. It's so much fun. You get to eat a whole bunch of good food, get to eat some sweets, you get to sit around with your loved ones, watch some great movies, you know, all the good stuff, right? All the fun stuff. It gets a little bit colder outside, makes you just want to grab a cup of hot chocolate, sit around and, you know, binge watch some Netflix. Well, we're going through all the best Christmas movies that we can think of And we're trying, I like to stagger it a little bit. All right. Maybe I'm a little weird, but I like for the Christmas spirit to build up slowly over the course of the 25 days leading up to Christmas. Right. I like to be able to start off with your, you know, your Christmas movies that are maybe a little bit cornier, some of the new ones that aren't as good, maybe some of the lamer kind of rom-com type Christmas movies. But then once you get closer to Christmas, that's when you break out your elf, classic. That's when you break out your Christmas story. You know, that's when you break out um, a Christmas vacation and it's a wonderful life, all the claymations. So we're not there yet, but we've been watching a couple of good ones. We just saw the Christmas Chronicles on Netflix, actually kind of pleasantly surprised. It was a decent movie. Was was not, uh, not necessarily looking forward to that one, but it actually ended up being pretty decent. So if any of you have great Christmas movies that you love to watch, I'm going to make a post in my about from my podcast today and I'm going to ask for all of your great Christmas movie recommendations on my Instagram. So, catch me on my Instagram, find me there and give me all of your best Christmas movie recommendations or maybe just fun Christmas traditions that you have that you like. So, with all of that, that's the show. It's a little bit of a shorter show today. Thank you for sticking in with us. Remember, like I just said, hit me up on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast. That's one T. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Facebook at Split the Difference. You can find me on my website as well at splitthedifference.com. Go on there, give me a, drop me a comment, a like, and a subscribe. It always helps out a ton. Give me a five-star review if you can as well. All of that helps me out in all of the different algorithms and trying to push my content forward. Thank you for checking us out. And as always, guys, remember, we're going to do our best to keep a level head. We're going to do our best to be reasonable. And we're always going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.